One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. He's tough. I'm Matt Riddle. I fought all around the world in steel cages, knocking people out and breaking bones. It's what I do. So again, do you want me to knock them out or tap them out? August 1 warning, identity revealed as the MMA legend Tito Ortiz. Hello there, folks. Welcome to We Don't Know Wrestling, and this is the first episode in a series on this podcast feed. Uh, Working title, The Desert Island Comp Series, um, where I'm going to take various wrestling fans, pundits, um, potentially wrestlers, and they're going to put together a wrestling comp they take with them to a deserted island. Hopefully, the desert island where uh, that wonderful professional wrestling match took place. Um, but otherwise, that's kind of the gist. Um, ten matches. That's the amount of matches you're going to take. And up to three angles, uh, vignettes, promos, etc. Uh, and put them in anywhere you like. So, without further ado, our first entrant onto this desert island. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Um, so yeah, I've been kicking around this idea, and I thought, hey, I liked having the conversation with you on our episode of We Don't Know Wrestling. <laughs> uh, let's let's give it another go. Let's see what happens uh, on a new idea um, that could be could be fun. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I had fun thinking about it, thinking about being on an island by myself. One of the most interesting things about this question when asked, uh, because it's been asked over the years in so many different ways, is that people normally play it straight. Uh, so you never really get a response of, oh, man, I just want the mm, the best Trish Stratus collection. I get. People normally play this question pretty straight, and it's always interesting to see uh, the insights uh, that the list provides into the person. Uh, so it's always fun. I had fun composing this list, and uh, I'll explain the method to the madness as we go on. So kind of to get started here, before we get into your compilation, uh, just wanted to kind of learn more about you and how you got into the wrestling fandom as you yourself have a podcast, Military Industrial Suplex. Yeah. Um, it takes a certain kind of fan to go from a to B there. Um, so I was kind of wondering what brought you into the wrestling circle and then what brought you into uh, that next level, I guess. Yeah. Well, for wrestling, wrestling has always just been in my family. I, it's funny because my dad doesn't watch it at all. He's familiar with certain people, certain angles. Uh, he may watch it with us here and there. But it wasn't really from him. It wasn't from my mother. I guess it was from my dad's family, so my aunts and uncles, and uh, just pretty much just been watching it ever since I was a child. I can't remember a time wrestling was just not in the house, except for when I was probably 13 or 14 years old, and I put myself on a pro wrestling exile. So that was the first time I sent myself to a desert island, but there was no comp tapes. Uh, and I think that lasted about two or three weeks until I finally tapped out and came back. 
so I don't know if that makes me a lapsed fan or lapsed fan twice removed or junior lapsed fan. I'm, I'm not sure. But, uh, yeah, wrestling's just been the cornerstone of my life. It's just been there ever since. Uh, as far as the suplex is concerned, uh, the military-industrial suplex at times uh, in forums, in conversation, even on Twitter we see it where sometimes we just want to talk about wrestling. But wrestling is so intertwined uh, in life, and so we have to talk about other aspects of our life. And there's certain things that are a bit more serious uh, than just a five-star match that we really need to discuss and break down, not necessarily to make the business better, uh, while, yes, that is true in part, uh, but again, just really analyze where we are, where we want to go, should something be scaled back, just really analyzing uh, where we are and just actually talking about it. Uh, It's so interesting to see, uh, even when we go back and we look at some of the tapes from the Attitude Era, how a lot of that we just, because we were talking about the event and not necessarily the machinations, if you will, or the thoughts behind what was happening and really breaking it down, uh, it just became commonplace. And I think now what we're seeing a lot, uh, especially on Twitter, you see uh, the backlash of someone like a Michael Elgin and Powerbomb TV and Russell Circus and uh, even the flack that just a lot of these wrestlers like Brahm and Alberto Del Rio are receiving uh, when it comes to uh, so many aspects that's happening in pro wrestling. I think that's interesting that we should really have a conversation about these things and not uh, do Twitter witch hunts or Twitch hunts or Uh, put people with scarlet letters so it's combining those two things of something that i love pro wrestling and also just conversation uh so to wrap up the point military industrial suplex was something uh that charles or parv or i can't remember probably will as well back on the pro wrestling only board they created uh because at times uh, these wrestling discussions would venture into something else next thing you know you're talking about neocolium is a and you're like, wait, what is going on here? Why are we talking about this? Why are we talking about libertarianism? Why are we talking about all of this other crazy stuff? Uh, I thought we were talking about an Undertaker match. And um, so that's where that came in. And so I named my podcast, The Military Industrial Suplex, uh, as an homage to the board, as a reminder. And I talk about that on my podcast. So at no point in time did I say, all right, this is me. This is my trademark or anything like that. It's uh, uh, an extenuation uh, or extent extension is the word I'm looking for (laughs) of the board and the thoughts and the discussions. And maybe we can have those in real time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, well, cool. Uh, that's a really interesting, uh, and feel free to cut that response if it was too long. (laughs) No, no, absolutely not. I would not dare to, um, but without further ado, we're going to get, End your compilation. Okay. In the beginning, darkness moved across the face of the deep. So, for the very first match here, uh, it's from WrestleMania 25. 
mm-hmm. took place at Reliance Stadium in Houston, Texas. And it is the one and only Undertaker versus Shawn Michaels. Mm-hmm. Now, why did you choose this match to put on your Desert Island comp? I chose this match because I hate this match. Now, let's step back for a moment and explain the psychology here. So I figured if I'm on a Desert Island, then I have a lot of time to myself, obviously. And I don't want to just put myself with matches that I enjoy Uh, because I feel as though they would get boring over time. I know the ins and outs. I may gain a little bit more appreciation into these matches, but because I love them so much, I feel as though there is a limit, a reasonable limit until a person begins to fool themselves in some way of saying, oh, well, I love it because of X, Y, and Z reason as well. And I'm sure the hot dog vendor was doing a good job. He has a smile on his face in this frame. And I think you're creating artificial reasons there. So I wanted something that would keep me interested, keep me engaged, make me think, make me think about not only what's happening in the match, but the overall structure of the match, how the match was put together, why it was done the way that it was done, the aftermath of the match, and then also think about the event itself to think about the characters involved, to think about their career paths, who they interacted with, et cetera, et cetera. So it's building and using a match that may be 10, 15, 20, 30 minutes, an hour, whatever it may be, and being able to create a universe where once that match is finished, the imagination is still running. And so I, I think that's why I did the li- I did the list the way that I did. As far as Undertaker and HBK, I don't like it. I think this was the match that for the very first time for me was very obvious as to WWE's self-conscious epic. This was one of the first matches where it just slapped me in the face where, okay, these guys are trying to win the Oscar. That's what this movie is. This is, or excuse me, that's what this match is. This is La La Land. This is In the Heart of the Sea. This is one of those movies that come out where you look at it and you say, okay, this is 110% Oscar bait. The movie is okay, but this is going to win eight awards. And that's exactly what happened at WrestleMania 25. Once the match finished, everyone said, wow, I can't believe it. I've never seen a match like that before. Five stars, best match of all time, best WrestleMania match of all time. And I didn't feel that way because I felt as though it was so hollow. I felt as though when you mix in and one of the and this is what's so interesting, the element of Shawn Michaels, because Shawn Michaels is very well known for his campy over-the-top, soap opera-level type of acting. And we're talking about D-soaps. So we're talking about something that's really bad. And so when you have that guy who does not have the chops and who doesn't know how to dial it back, and you have a situation of WWE who isn't good at creating these real dramatic moments without just overly manufacturing them to such an extent that it becomes cringeworthy, And then you have The Undertaker, who is very limited in what he can do in his role uh, as far as reactions are concerned, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, The booking is pretty straightforward. 
as it relates to him. So there isn't really a lot of depths um, that can be explored there or that weren't explored for the longest time. <clears throat> and I think that when you combine all of these elements together, it really is a peanut butter and mayonnaise sandwich. Peanut butter and mayonnaise. Peanut butter and mayonnaise, my man. It's a very nasty taste. It left a bad taste in my mouth. For other people, it did as well. And it was uh, surprising to get online. And uh, I felt like I was, an I was on an island at some point. You go to certain places and you feel like you're on an island to yourself and you're wearing the crazy tinfoil hat and you're, uh, you know, a Swiss Army man. And then you find out there are other people on the island as well. And so... Perhaps you need to put on a pair of pants. Interesting, interesting. Um, so I didn't, I didn't expect the first match off the bat to be one that you don't like. Um, oh, we are going in. It feels like I don't know if that's going to be a theme, um, but we'll see. We'll <laughs> see. Uh, so I guess one question about this match, and uh, not sure if you'll have an answer, but do you think this is one of the maybe the first match to legitimize the concept of in mainstream wrestling at the very least of going out there to have a great match um to have that oscar bait uh sort of match that ticks all those boxes it was the first one that felt i would say to me it was it was the first one that just felt way too phony just way too phony from start to finish where it's so hard to say. I feel like Shawn Michaels should have just had a sign around his neck that says, this is drama. Uh, it was just too on the nose for me. I mean, we saw Goldberg and Lesnar try and do it uh, to an extent at WrestleMania 20. But that didn't come off as that came off more as tone deaf versus pretending to know exactly what the crowd wanted and delivering it in such a meticulous and uh, mechanical way of, oh, you want you want drama? Okay, well, how about I do this? Oh, well, what, what makes you smile? Okay, well, I'll just do this. And it's just checking off the boxes. And again, it was one of the first matches uh, in this era, especially in WWE and on the mainstream, as you mentioned, that just really stood out to me as, okay, guys, what's going on here? This is totally over the top. And it just missed every mark with me. So, yeah, I w to me, I would say this is the first one. Uh, for other people, um, hmm, it, it would be hard to say because, again, just when I start thinking about the timeline, I feel like everything, even if it was hokey in some extent, like Austin's retirement, Mick Foley's retirement, et cetera, et cetera, uh, there was always some sincerity there. But this one just felt completely hollow. Understood. Understood. Um, yeah, I, I when I first watched it, I thought it was pretty tremendous, but that was also uh, 2009. So that was nearly a decade ago. <laughs> so it's been a minute since I watched the match. I, w I want you to watch the match and just post on your Twitter so people can follow you on your Twitter. Heat of the moment. So Concrete 1992. And they can follow you and just... Let me know your thoughts uh, in 2018 when you watch the match. Uh, try and disregard everything that I say. I don't want to be that voice in your, hate the match, hate the match, hate the match. Just watch the match and just see how you feel and what you think about it. I would be curious to know. All right. Will do. Will do. Um, well, on to the second match on 
your Desert Island compilation. There is a report about the finish of the match that Nick Patrick was supposed to deliver a fast count so there could be some something to talk about, but didn't. There a double cross? That was one of those things that was just like, you know, you, you know, you, you never know. This is going to be from the day before my fifth birthday, December 28th, 1997, from the MCI Center at Washington, D.C. It is Hollywood, Hulk Hogan versus Sting from Starcade 1997. Yeah, well, happy belated birthday. Some 20-plus years later. Happy belated fifth birthday. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so this match, so why this match? This match was, when you start talking about the late 90s and you talk about pro wrestling, if someone had to make a top 100 list or even a top 10 list, really, of the most anticipated matches, of the big matches of that time period, this match is on that list. Now, we all know how the match played out and we know the history of the build. So why would I have this match <laughs> where the good guy is made to look like a chump? The bad guy essentially wins and it's only through screwiness and uh, essentially the good guy, quote unquote, cheating. If we want to take a look at it that way, good becomes victorious sting is victorious only through all of that other unnecessary stuff. It left a lot of it left a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths because they felt as though this should have been again, how do you mess this up? This is a classic story that's been told for generations, a hero with a thousand faces. And yet WCW does something different. This is one of the matches that I would watch mainly because I wouldn't be able to have the entire story on tape, but I would be able to build that story in my head, remember the story, and reminisce on certain parts, my favorite parts of that story, and just the building to the match. And then what's so interesting about WCW around the time is just the backstage politics. So just thinking about all the political maneuverings that went into that finish, that went into the match, and then just looking at the structure itself and saying, wow, here's a company that blew a huge opportunity. For me, this would just be a case study. Every time I see this match, every time I look at this match, it would just be a huge case study of me leaning up against a coconut tree, arms crossed, watching this and saying, how the fuck could anyone do this with a straight face? It's one of those things where... <sighs> It really is just shooting yourself in the foot. And to me, that's just so interesting when someone has a very easy path that they can take and they decide to do something different because it may or may not appease someone. Uh, I look at it as you have two roads that lead to the same destination. Instead of taking the one that's straight with no hazards, you decide to take the long and windy road that's slippery just because your significant other may smile. Uh, obviously when millions of dollars are involved and one of the largest icons of the world uh, in pro wrestling is involved, it's a little bit different as well. 
Um, but yeah, I, that's why I would have that match. I mean, what did you think about the match at the, not at the time, but I'm sure as you got older, you got to take a look at it and uh, maybe with or without context. Uh, what do you think about it? So I will met some of these matches on your list. Oh. I have not seen this one. I did uh, this week, um, making making time in my busy schedule. And my goodness, was this was this a, a little bit of a confusing structurally uh, match? And the finish is odd, confusing. Not sure how it happens. Um, I don't know the backstory of it, other than what I saw on the screen and it was, I don't know if it was hilarious or sad um, where the ref does a, was supposed to do a fast count and I guess in theory. Um, and it's just, a, it's just a, maybe a little bit quicker than a regular count, but def, no one would confuse it with a fast count. Uh, and then Bret Hart restarts the match. And like what in the world? Who, who chose this? Who made this decision? Um, no one knows. Good. No, seriously, no one knows. Uh, <laughs> if you, it depends on who you talk to, uh, actually, when it comes to that decision. But yeah, just the fascination around it. Uh, it's like there's a Pruder film in some case, or the you know some conspiracy uh, moon landings uh, that's going on. Um, but yeah, I, I think that would that's that's why that is on the list. Again, it's not on the list because. Oh my God! I just love what happens bell to bell. It's more of a again a case study of just sitting down and really looking at why WCW fell apart. I mean that is I wouldn't necessarily say it's Exhibit A, uh, but it's definitely in the alphabet. Yeah, I'm glad I picked you for the first one uh, on the Desert Island compilation because I don't think I think we need I think I needed someone that was going to take this approach of um, it's not just about the match; it's about what that match makes you think it's about kind of it makes you think about all the surroundings all the build all the um turmoil uh it's uh it's got more going for it than just a regular just just a match with a wonky finish yeah all righty then without further ado then we move on to match number three on your desert island compilation you know i look at that match from start to finish really truly is a work of art. Every large detail, small detail. It was the Tokyo Dome. How do you top that? And then I look at the finish. I lost. So how do you make a flawless match better? It's easy. The right man wins in the end. From New Japan Pro Wrestling's Dominion, from Osaka Hall is going to be Kenny Omega versus Kazuchika Okada. Mm-hmm. Uh, why? Why did you choose the this match specifically? Uh, this match within the series of Kenny Omega versus Okada. Yeah. The reason why I chose this match is I feel it really speaks to the time that we live in. Uh, so, again, if we were to be on a desert island, this would more so than any uh, match on here would really trans- uh, transport me back to the time of just being connected to wrestling fans and what they value. 
And I think that this match and the ratings that it received is very directly, uh, more so than any other match. I don't want to say in necessarily the history of pro wrestling, uh, but any other real mainstream match on the mainland that we would see in WWE or WCW or ECW. I feel like this match really has uh, was viewed with Meltzer eyes by thousands of people around the world. And I think the analysts of this match, or the analysis, I should say, of this match uh, confirms it in some cases. Uh, the star rating of this match, uh, the debate about the star rating, uh, this match wasn't about the match. No one was talking about the match. People were talking about people talking about the match. People were talking about the ratings of the match. The conversation of this match became the conversation of the conversation about the match. And so it was very postmodern in the sense that we weren't necessarily looking at uh, anything that occurred or the or how it actually meant in the overall story. But we took a look at those moments and then we looked at the reaction to the moments and the narrative was built off that. Obviously not in all cases and with everyone. There are a lot of people who looked at the match structurally and gave it gave it a good rating or they really enjoyed it. And I think that a lot of uh, this stuff, as it is with the analysis, as we have with Twitter, a lot of it is a knee-jerk reaction. Hey, this thought popped into my mind. Let me write it down. And I feel as though this match is a real good uh, visualization of that, of, hey, this is great in the moment. Don't think about it any further, because the moment you think about it further just as if you type something on Twitter, you think about it a little further, you say, okay, maybe I should delete that. Okay, maybe making fun of someone losing their job isn't the best thing. I should probably delete that uh, two, three hours later after the fact. Uh, but I feel, again, this match just really speaks to the times. I think it speaks to the moment. I think that this match, uh, when we start talking about genuine moments, so the first moment uh, with Undertaker and Shawn Michaels was completely phony. It was too self-conscious. It was hollow. The second moment of Hogan and Sting, it was a moment of confusion. It was power plays. It was everyone just trying to do whatever it is they need to do, whereas this match is a match that is really of its time and really speaks to the way that we interact currently in this digital world, where it's about it's about the gifs. It's about the pops. It's about the oohs and the ahs and the moment. Not necessarily how the moments string together. Uh, if they string together loosely, if they string together well, it's still overall in the moments. And we see this in WWE programming. We just saw Raw 25, where nothing of note really happened on Raw 25. Why is Raw 25 this historic event? Why is it so important? Because it's Raw 25. And so the moment of it just being Raw 25 is more important than anything that happens within that moment. Because what happens within that moment doesn't matter because it's still just the moment. And I think that we learned that in some cases, you know, when we start digesting history, uh, when we're younger and we're taught history, we're taught about the big overarching themes and we don't really get down uh, to the nuance and I think that over time, that's the way that we remember a lot of events in our lives. We don't necessarily remember the nuance. Uh, so again, I think that this match speaks well to that fact of where 
uh, wrestling is today, where it's all about the brand, it's about the gifs, it's about the moment, not necessarily that moment being sincere, but just the fact that it occurred. So this is going to be another match where it is more about the thought process and more around the surrounding elements, the six quarter stars, the sequel to the match that broke the scale again. Um, do you think that it, the, being you're taking this to a desert island, uh, mm-hmm. you are going to be able to properly examine it for what it is and kind of dissect it and see uh, may not where the faults are, but where you can understand maybe more that praise. Oh yeah, definitely. I would, you know, these guys are amazing, uh, absolutely amazing athletes. Uh, so I would definitely understand the praise. At the end of the day, people want to see a car wreck. They want to see an amazing show. They want to see flips. They want to see dives. They want to see people who are not phoning it in. And so to have two guys with passion who are going out there doing the best they can, uh, how what they define as good, uh, because again we can talk about what is good and how you define good and is good good enough, or you know we can talk about that. But uh, would I enjoy it? Uh, yeah, absolutely. If I wanted to see just someone take crazy bumps and do crazy things, and two guys who are out there with something to prove. I mean, Okada, he was in TNA, and they had him dressing like Kato from the Green Lantern and not doing anything. Kenny Omega, he was in. Uh, before going to New Japan and becoming this big thing, he was doing Ring of Honor and PWG and all these other shows. So to see him become a legit megastar, I mean, these are two guys who prove themselves outside of the mainland in a post-ECW, post-WCW world. These are guys who really went up the ranks without spending any real time in WWE, without having that WWE rub or that WWE name on their resume and so again it's just really amazing because you take a look at these two guys and you see okay these are two of the guys who are in the forefront of this new movement that is beginning to not necessarily push WWE out of the way but offer a more viable second product where TNA failed New Japan and other promotions are starting to succeed. You have Progress doing a show in Wembley. New Japan just showed out 5K at Long Beach. Cody Rhodes is doing a 10K show. This is because of guys like, again, Kenny Omega, putting in that work and showing that you can create a life and create a career, again, post-Big 3 era, outside WWE. And, you know, like I said, I, I think it's just really amazing. Well, alrighty then. Uh-uh. With, then if that is it for Omega vs. Akata 2, we will move on to your fourth match. That is going to be from Best of the Super Juniors 23, taking place on May 27th, 2016, from Kirk and Hall. It is going to be 
Ricochet versus Will Ospreay. Uh, Alrighty, so get into it. it. Do you actually like this match, Tom? Do you like this match? It takes me back to the 1996 Summer Olympics with Dominique Dawes doing her flips and cartwheels. And there were so many flashes going on in the arena. I believe they were at the Georgia Dome. And the announcer got on and said, all right, guys, no flashes while they're flipping because it's distracting. I mean, there was tons of bulbs going off. And so this was Dominique Dolls versus Carrie Shrug to me. <laughs> and again, why would I put this match? I remember the first time I saw the match, I saw it in GIFs. So I only saw the animation, just a few seconds of the animation. And it was amazing what they were doing. Again, appreciating the athleticism, appreciating the risk. But as I saw more and more of it, I said, okay, well, this looks pretty stupid. Uh, in some cases, risk where you're like, ah, this guy really could have broke his neck. And I actually sat down and watched the match. And I purposely watched the match with someone who is aware of wrestling, who may have seen wrestling here and there, but isn't really a fan. And they were just impressed by it. Wow, it was amazing. For me, there was no story. Now, someone may say, okay, well, it was a story of one-upsmanship, but not really. Because for me, to one-up someone isn't necessarily to go toe-to-toe. Uh, as far as I flip, you flip, I flip, you flip. But to do something that has meaning to it, to truly one-up someone. If you and I are just both flipping around the ring, then, well, we're just doing a breakdancing contest and we're doing an exhibition. But if one of my flips is so strategic that I'm not trying to impress you or I'm not trying to make a good landing, I am trying to do something that completely takes you off your game so I can win the match, to me, that's one-upsmanship in pro wrestling. The thing is, is that at no point in time did I ever think that either of these guys wanted to win the match. And that's a huge problem. There has to be stakes. There has to be urgency. And I can understand that uh, two high flyers have a different psychology. Because, again, we are talking about a different psychology here. And some people don't understand it. Or they understand it, but they do not want to fully grasp it. Or maybe they grasp it and they understand it, but they do not really appreciate it. And so it's just different things. And so for me, I understand why they were doing what they were doing. But it was outside of the typical high-flying psychology and more into that postmodern high-flying psychology. The high-flying psychology isn't necessarily built on internet reactions or getting a good steal or getting a good gif. However, that's how it is in the postmodern way, where, okay, what can we do that's really cool that I can have this moment? Because, again, we're talking about moments here. What can I do to have this moment that travels around the world and gets people talking. What can I do to have this commercial, this five-second commercial that goes around the world instantaneously? Because we don't have time to watch entire matches. 
we watch them and you know th- these are the previews to the match and this is what we see and so i think that ricochet and uh will osprey did a good job of putting together really fantastic trailer that people would want to see but unfortunately when you sit down and you actually watch it you're left with suicide squad and that's just what it is so again i would watch it more so to appreciate the athleticism uh, to think about the thought that went into the match and really try and just break down the psychology of, okay, if two guys, let's pretend for a moment that pro wrestling is real and that two guys really got together, suited up, got in the ring and started doing this legit. What would be the mindset of Ricochet? What's going on through Will Ospreay's head? And so I, I would really be interested in that. Uh, but again, as a mindless, hey, guys, let's do cool stuff and flip around, uh, gymnastics exhibition uh, is fantastic. Yeah, uh, you can go to KJI. There's a GIF selection over at uh, Cage Size Seats. Um, this match got a lot of buzz at the time, uh, even being on ESPN. Uh, so, yeah, if in this day and age, it, I think – the match was nothing less than a success. Um, whether that, whether it was artistically good, I that's up to uh, the viewer, I suppose. But it definitely succeeded what I think the goal was, which was to uh, generate excitement among people. Uh, may not just put wrestling fans, but just put on something that is entertaining. Uh, maybe not a coherent piece of art. Um, not a cohesive match, but at the same time, it, that's not their end goal. Um, it is more about uh, putting on a display of athleticism that, in the i, in the structure of a pro wrestling wrestling match. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, something that is good isn't necessarily entertaining. Something that's entertaining isn't necessarily good. But again, it depends on how you define good. Did you get to see this match? And if so, what were your thoughts? Um, I saw this uh, closer to when the match happened in 2016, and I enjoyed the match. I did not think it was a bad match. I didn't think it was a great match. I thought it was just a fine uh, piece of wrestling where I don't I don't think they truly did anything that offended my senses. Um, sure, some of this stuff was a little silly, but uh, in the grand scheme of things, on a random night of Best of the Super Juniors, I felt I could have done a lot worse. <laughs> um, but all right, do you have anything else you'd like to, to say on Will Ospreay versus Ricochet from Best of the Super Juniors 2016? I think the match speaks for itself. Well, all right. Then, <laughs> then moving on to number five. We have our first uh, segment of your compilation. It's going to be the Tyson Austin promo from Raw in 1998. Uh, can you walk me through this? Yeah, so this is leading to WrestleMania 14. Uh, WWE has gone attitude. The product has become a bit edgier. And Mike Tyson, uh, Vince McMahon brings out the baddest man on the planet, Mike Tyson. And Vince McMahon is just excited he has an announcement at WrestleMania 14. It's going to be Iron Mike Tyson. And then the glass shatters. 
and Stone Cold just starts walking out. And I watched this uh, a few weeks ago again. And this segment and a lot of Stone Cold and McMahon segments from that time period and uh, later on, it still holds up. It holds up 20 years later, over 20 years later. This stuff still holds up. And Austin comes out with the super tight jeans, which I never understood. Uh, but he comes out. He just interrupts the promo. He's talking about how he's the baddest man. And he had, and Mike Tyson doesn't understand him. He has a little sign language for him. So here's to you. And they just start brawling. Tyson pushes him. And Austin, uh, he just starts swinging at everybody. And McMahon's face during all of this is just amazing. Vince McMahon is one of the best. He knows pro wrestling. He is one of the best characters of all time in pro wrestling. And just it, Austin beating people up, the pull apart brawl, JR screaming. Uh, McMahon's like, You ruined it, Austin. You ruined it. And he's kicking at him, and he's trying to get shots in. And it's just really crazy. It just brings me back to a time where wrestling was just fun. It was moving in a direction because it had to move in a new, new direction. Uh, what was done earlier just wasn't working anymore. And so it, it was fresh. It was fun. It's two guys that you believe could really get it on. It's not. It's none of this uh posturing that we see now where you see a MMA fighter calling out a boxer <laughs> outside of the case of uh, McGregor and Mayweather, a lot of it is just talk uh, because it's not really going to happen. Uh, but to see Tyson Austin going at it and you think to yourself, okay, Vince McMahon is crazy enough to actually book this fight. And Tyson needs the money, and Austin would love. So you don't know what's going on. It's just a very energizing segment. It's just a segment of, okay, there's a fight that's going to happen. There's conflict. Guys are ready to go at it. It's, it's fun. It really is. Yeah, there, you don't really get that in this landscape. I mean, I do think McGregor versus... Floyd probably the closest example since it actually did occur. Um, but that's the one in the million chance of people wanting to make money uh, and it, them willing it into existence. Um, where in this case, this is pro wrestling at its peak, essentially. This is the WWE at its hottest. Um, this is Mike Tyson. This is baddest man on the planet. Um, you don't really get that kind of mix of two incredible personalities, incredible talents, um, huge stars in their respective sports um, before media started to uh, segment, decided to uh, disintegrate, and you get uh, people spread out more uh, across their their TV watching and whatever. This is when everyone was watching uh, a select amount of programs, and that's why ratings were so high. Uh, that also mean every, that these two individuals were notable beyond you really can get today. Um, so yeah, this... and what was so interesting about it as well was just having the Austin character, a guy that people again legit would think that 
you know, he could actually take take out Mike Tyson if needed. Um, we don't really have that uh, in WWE as of right now. If Anthony Joshua uh, were to step into the ropes or someone like a Tyrone Woodley or let's say a uh, Steve Miocic or let's say Daniel Cormier, Daniel's better. Uh, so Daniel or Anthony or uh, Dante Wilder, you know, one of these people, they step into the ring. I can't really think of anyone in WWE. I mean, obviously there's Braun Strowman and Brock Lesnar, but let's let's take the size out of it. I don't see Dean Ambrose or Roman Reigns or Seth Rollins or Kevin Owens being one of these guys where I can honestly say, holy shit, I think they can actually beat up, you know, uh, one of these famous MMA or boxing guys. And uh, for me at the time, Austin was completely legit where I could see him beating up Mike Tyson if need be. To me, it was a fair fight. Roman, so, Roman that, Reigns is a shooter, though. I'm not sure if you're aware, but that that spear, it's a shoot. It's not – it ain't messing around. <laughs> it ain't playing no games. It is – there is no work in that thing. That's all large human being the, going, in, going through another yeah. large human being. Yeah, it's definitely not a Edge's running hug. No, it's definitely not. It definitely is that not. Is, that it is not. I mean, to be fair, I do think the Brock mash – did legitimize Roman slightly in that way as someone who can throw down when need be with someone that has a legitimate <laughs> background. Um, maybe Brock has been good for something, um, but someone probably disagree with that. Um, well, all right then. We're going to move on to the next match on the de- – your. Desert Island, Calculation. From All Japan Pro Wrestling, October Giant Series 1995, from the Budokan, is going to be Mizuhura Masawa versus Kenta Kobashi. We are cracking the coating coconut right about now. When I think of good wrestling, I feel as though uh, so far this compilation has been a binge on junk food and things I shouldn't eat. Uh, I feel this is me sitting down and actually having vegetables for a day uh, despite going on a binge for two weeks and eating Taco Bell. Uh, so I'm now sitting down and having my vegetables. I think this match really speaks to, uh, for me personally, the appreciation of pro wrestling, appreciation of risk and just the art form in general. Uh, not to put it too high on a pedestal, uh, but again, I think it uh, takes a lot. I, I think sometimes we can get lost in the wackiness and the sports entertainment aspect, but I think that when you bring it right down to basics, uh, and you have just two stoic guys just telling a story, just hard-hitting. And everything has meaning and everything has purpose. Uh, I think it's just, again, it's the vegetables. It's everything that we need. Uh, well, it's not everything, but it's a essential part. And I, that's why that match is there. So that, that's a good one for me. So this is going to be the match that, so far, that you enjoy. 
So that's always that's kind of, that's nice. That's nice. <laughs> um, it feels like so far we've been it's been more of an exercise on the the noggin. Uh, yeah. of well, you know, sometimes out... you have yeah. Sometimes you have to step off the ledge and just go downstairs and have a nice cappuccino and then go back onto the ledge. No, um, you know, every everything I, I find enjoyment. I don't want people to think that I put together some masochist's list or something like that. You know, I'm not sitting in a clock tower like oh, I'm going to fix myself writing on the walls. Uh, but this was just a again, I, I feel like there's a joy in every aspect because at the end of the day, it's all pro wrestling. Everything on this list is pro wrestling and I love pro wrestling. And even though I may not like what I see, I still love it in a way because it's part of that universe where I can sit back and laugh or just shake my head or it's, it's all, there's always some element in all of this uh, that I love. Uh, even if we go back to the first one, Undertaker and Shawn Michaels, just the spectacle of WrestleMania. Uh, I remember at a point in my life just being so in tuned to ROH and PWG and just watching indies and TNA. And then one day I watch WWE and I just really sit back and I look at the production. I'm like, wow, this is amazing. And that's what it is in pro wrestling. So, you know, just all these moments, uh, there's always something special, even though the match may not be special in some ways. So you had a lot of 90s all Japan to pick from um, mm -hmm. was there a specific reason why you chose this specific match this is one of the and this might just be nostalgia uh but this was one of the first matches of these two that i saw and i saw believe i can't remember my first kenta match uh kenta kabashi that is i cannot remember my first uh, masawa match uh but this was the match where oh wait these guys fought each other that's cool <laughs> You know, you mean I can put peanut butter on this side of the bread and jelly on this side of the bread and I can put it together and it's a PB&J? That, that's a thing? And so to me, it was one of the first times just actually seeing these two guys that, again, I had little exposure to. Uh, but at the time, it was like, oh, they're pretty cool. Oh, wow, they versi. Oh, man, this is great. Let's see this. And so, again, it may just be nostalgia. But I think that if we're on a desert island, again, nostalgia definitely isn't a bad thing. Yeah, I think, especially if I'm putting you on this desert island, you're going to need a little nostalgia in a good way. Uh, oh, yeah. So, all right, there we go. That's the the sixth selection on your desert island comp. Moving on to number seven. From Ring of Honor's Undeniable, from October 6, 2007, we have, from the Amen Sports Club, Takeshi Morishima versus Nigel McGuinness for the RH World title. Why did you pick this match? Let's talk about this island that I'm on. Is there a cabana? It, there can be. There can be. We can okay. arrange this for you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> this match was... Again, Ring of Honor went through this period of just really good storytelling. Matches that felt big. 
this match for me at the time captured what Shawn Michaels and The Undertaker could not. Bigger budget, bigger production, more writers. They could not pull it off. Nigel McGuinness and Morishima did. I cared about it. I cared about the result. I cared about the people involved. Morishima was a badass. And it was a legit fight. And at no point in time, and we can talk about the rebound lariat, if you will, but I didn't feel as though a lot of this match was too cute. Uh, Obviously, it's pro wrestling, so there's always going to be some element of cute in a match. Uh, But I didn't feel as though this overdid it. Uh, It definitely sold me (laughs) on Morishima being champ, of Nigel being champ, and just Ring of Honor just in general. I mean, Ring of Honor had a pretty high standard prior to this match. A lot of great moments, a lot of great memories, a lot of great wrestlers. Uh, But again, to me, this always stood out as one of the principal Uh, rivalries that I really enjoyed in Ring of Honor. It was always amazing, and it was always fun. So you think this match accomplished its goal as far as being a big title, uh, a passing of of this belt, of the Ring of Honor Championship before it became more of a prop now uh, than it was then, uh, when it meant more. You think they delivered on that that promise of what you expect from a Ring of Honor title match? Correct. I, I do feel like at the time they delivered. So it, it was a good feeling. Again, I enjoyed their series, uh, the Morishima and Nigel series, anytime they locked up and got together. Uh, but yeah, I, I definitely feel that it was a good time to end the saga or bring it to a, a pretty good close. And I think, like I said, it was, I I don't know what else to say about it. I really just enjoyed it. Were you invested in the Nigel arc at this time? I was definitely invested in the Nigel arc. I was invested in Nigel. I was invested in Takeshi. Uh, I thought that he was, and we'll talk about him a little bit later. Uh, I thought, again, he just had this presence of a guy who didn't need to come in and say much or really do anything. He didn't need to have uh, an advocate He just came in and kicked ass and left everything in the ring. And you could tell how he felt just based off facial expressions. Uh, He would grunt at the right time or scream at the right time. A lot of it's timing. And that all just seems so easy to do. But then you see, again, someone like uh, Claire Lynch, for example, uh, in TNA, who's doing all this stuff and it just comes off as hokey. It comes off as bad. Again, Shawn Michaels is a very good example for a wrestler who's unable to do it. And yet someone like Jushin Liger, despite wearing a mask, you can tell it's like he can emote through the mask and you know what the Liger character is feeling. And I think that uh, Takeshi Morishima during his Ring of Honor run was very good at You know, he didn't have to cut long promos. He didn't have to have an advocate. He didn't have to do these elaborate, silly things. He kept it basic. He did all his talking to the ring, and it was just amazing. So, uh, that you know, the match is on the list because, again, when you start stripping away gimmicks, I think of Lady Gaga. I think Lady Gaga, I'm not really a fan of her music. Uh, I'm not really... Uh, fan of her stage shows or anything like that. But when you strip all of that away, 
you still have a woman who can sing her heart out, who can play the piano, who's classically trained. She's amazing. But when you add all those other layers onto it, it's still a good thing. And so I feel Nigel and uh, Takeshi, uh, to me in a way, it was just very stripped away of a lot of nonsense that you may see uh, definitely at the time in WWE and maybe other promotions. And it, like I said, it just really worked. Well, alrighty, alrighty. Um, then if you don't mind, we'll keep this train moving uh, on to your eighth segment on your Desert Island compilation. Only two! Don't give a pat of mutilation! He's got it locked in! From Manhattan Mayhem 2, taking place in the Manhattan Center on August 25th, 2007. For Ring of Honor, it is going to be Takeshi Morishima versus Brian Danielson. So two Morishima matches back-to-back here. Uh, Why did this match make your compilation? This one was very hard-hitting. It was very bloody. Uh, This was the one where... Uh, Daniel Bryan's wearing the eye patch, I believe, and he's uh, the work. I may have my timeline off now that I had mentioned that. Uh, yeah, this is going to be the one that caused caused, caused the. Yeah, okay, there we go. Yeah. <clears throat> so yeah, this was the one that caused that, and I just remember the elbows to the eye, just really amazing, right? Yeah, and again. Daniel Bryan, or Bryan Danielson, excuse me, as we're uh, talking about Ring of Honor, in a world where Daniel Bryan doesn't exist. But uh, Bryan Danielson, just obviously amazing. Again, I already spoke about Takeshi uh, Morishima and what I thought about him. And so just those two elements together, uh, two guys who aren't worried about being cute. And again, you're seeing a fight. You're seeing Bryan fighting for his life. You see Takeshi fighting trying to keep this guy down, and then it leads to the eye patch. I mean, that's just amazing, amazing. So just the drama from this match, the, you know, the intensity and just everything that uh, Morishima represents to me, just being that force, and then Brian just being the great under underdog that he is, again, it just works. I had to put it up there. Absolutely, this is a special, special match. Um, I think it's one. Of, it's it definitely would be at least, in, very least, in consideration uh, for a compilation of my own. Um, it's raw. Mm-hmm. Like you don't see a lot of matches that just feel like they ooze that rawness. Um, I think it once again proves that Brian Danielson is one of the best that's ever laced up a pair of boots. Um, and Morishima was a kind of a perfect time and place sort of character for Ring of Honor, uh, as you kind of went over in the the Nigel uh, match. Yeah. Well, all right. Um, I don't have very much to add to that. Uh, <laughs> is there anything else you would like to say as far as any sort of nostalgia you have for this match? Any sort of insights you're hoping to lean into uh, as you watch this match? probably many, many more times uh, as time goes by. Probably just what makes someone want to be a pro wrestler. And 
what would make someone just want to just do a match so hard hitting as this? Uh, again, these are probably questions I would be able to answer within the first five minutes of thinking about it. But I think just really watching this match versus some of the others where we see, again, bad acting, flippity-doos, politics, and then we get to here and we say, wow, these guys are really digging in each other and they're not doing it in a stadium with big lights or they're not making million-dollar paychecks or they don't have the benefit of GIFs and all this other uh, instant fame and et cetera of the internet as it would become. I mean, it was still big then, but obviously bigger throughout the years. It's really amazing to just sit back and say, okay, these guys are doing this and less than 1,000 people are there. Again, it's just really interesting into uh, looking at the dedication, the passion, the commitment uh, that people put into it and seeing that these guys on such a small stage are able to do something and deliver something that, again, WrestleMania 25, they can't do it. Millions, millions of dollars, bright lights, big stadium, they couldn't do it. These guys did it. So to understand that uh, that line, that disparity, is just really, it's really interesting. All right. Um, yeah, I think this is definitely going to be a fascinating match to see. I think it clicks on so many levels, uh, but being able to kind of real watch and sort of dedicate the time to figuring out what really is, what's the engine behind everything. Um, also kind of the questions that make you think like you, like you said, uh, what makes someone want to do, put, put themselves through what, uh, Danielson put himself through in this match, uh, and being okay with it at the end of the day. Yeah. Because I feel the other matches are glamorous in some aspect. Uh, again, just wrestling for so many people and everything else. And, uh, this is one of the first matches and same thing with the Nigel match where, we aren't really necessarily talking about a big crowd or a big platform or anything like that. Obviously, the Ring of Honor platform uh, was pretty huge, but nothing to WWE's or New Japan's or anything like that. So their reach uh, wasn't as big uh, as it is today. So, yeah, just really exploring that is, I think, would be really interesting to sit down. And then, of course, to see uh, what Brian Danielson eventually achieved. Again, just really amazing to see that this is the type of work that he put in on day one, so to speak. And why he's probably not going to be back in our lives uh, anytime in the near future. Yeah, yeah. And, and, it's, and it's really unfortunate. It's one of those things where you sit back and you say, this is, this is a great match, but this is also one of the reasons why he is not doing what he's doing today. This is why he's one of the all-time greats. This is why he might not be the all-time great. Uh, yeah. Well, cool. Let's move on to number nine. Oh, he belly to belly to He's got a doodle in there. He belly to belly. What strength by Rick Steiner. He's trying to hook Abdullah. The crowd here going crazy in the opening moments of Halloween Havoc. Texas Jack, he thinks... Steiner's in there, but it's Abdullah. Cactus Jack thought it was Rick Steiner, but Abdullah. My gosh. Think about what he's experiencing. He's getting cooked. 
It is from Halloween Havoc 1991 from UTC Arena in Chattanooga, Tennessee uh, for World Championship Wrestling from Halloween Havoc. It is going to be uh, the Chamber of Horrors. The Chamber of Horrors. Why did the Chamber of Horrors make your Desert Island Cop? Well, that's the thing. I need to fuck with myself when I'm on the island. Uh, so wiping with the left, shaking with the right. But at the same time, a little Halloween havoc. A little doomsday. Chamber of Horrors. Again, pro wrestling is supposed to be fun. And it's wacky at its very core. And this is the wackiness. This is over the top. This is a bunch of people sitting in a room doing coke and saying, hey, guys, I got an idea. And because everyone else is coked up, everyone's, hey, this is fantastic. Let's go with it. And it, everyone is feeling pretty good until the bell actually rings. And they're just like, oh, man, well, who did, who did the green light? Who, uh, who gave this the go? Uh <sighs> I really recommend everyone just watch this match. I mean, it is. And it, the the other thing is, is there's so many Hall of Famers involved in this match. I mean, there's a who's who in this match. Like Al Gigante. Is, exactly. WWE Hall of Famer Gigante. He's there. And when you, again, like I said, when you start taking a look at it and you start doing the math, it's just really amazing that this was pulled off with a straight face. A straight face. Pretty much everyone played it as straight as they could. Uh, but again, Vader's there, Sting's there, Cactus Jack, the Diamond Stud, we know who that is, uh, Abdullah the Butcher. It, it was just amazing. It's, it's just one of those spectacles that if it were done today, you may not enjoy it, you may not clamor for it but you're going to watch it you're going to say what the fuck is this and you're going to sit down and you're going to watch it and i think that on a desert island you're going to need some of that you're going to need what the hell's going on here like this is crazy who are these people why why is this happening and i think that would be fun yeah so far uh you've got some real flow going here with your your selection uh you start with a lot of thought experience a lot of stuff that you really don't might not like but uh, if you're going to be stuck somewhere, you'll wanna, you want to see more of. You want to be able to kind of a, digest it because it's really kind of – for you, it is viewed as just simple stuff that can be processed pretty easily. But also stuff that you can really dig into and see, um, yeah, that, this is why it's not good or the like. Also make you remember things like with Hogan and Sting. Uh, then you have some more feel-good stuff uh, coming off the Tyson-Austin promo where uh, you have the great match with Masao and Kobashi. You have that great match and moment for Nigel and Morishima. And then you have the completely raw uh, and uh, thought-provoking on the Danielson and at the very least match with Danielson and Morishima and Han Mayhem too. And now we're here at a... A cluster of a match, a real a real nightmare situation um, that I think is real entertaining. Uh, if just messy as all heck. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah, like I said, this is where the fun comes in, and you always have to get the chickens always come home to roost. And that's what this match is. It's just wacky pro wrestling that, as a kid, I would watch and say, oh, man, to me, this was the Super Bowl, this match. So that that's why it's on the list. It's just wacky pro wrestling. Well, all righty then. There we go. That's your your number nine here. Uh, we're nearing the end of the compilation. Moving on to number ten. Stone Cold Steve Austin will be in the main event at WrestleMania. Oh hell yeah! From is that how Ty Dillinger's music goes? I have no idea. I don't okay. really listen to the music very much. I tune it out. <laughs> I tune it out. Normally, people tune out the commentary. You tune out the entrance music. Yes. So, how do you know who's coming up? I just, Let's say you're in the kitchen. It's a surprise. And... It's okay. I like to, I like little little spice in my life. A little spice. You go to the kitchen to get guacamole. You come out, Dolph Ziggler is on TV, which actually works out better for you because he doesn't come out to theme music now, or sometimes he doesn't. Interesting. That's a bold move. It's a bold yeah. move. I'm not sure I would do it. <laughs> well, he's not over anymore, but for some <laughs> reason they just uh, re-signed him. I, they, very curious as to why that would occur. I mean, uh, again, Dolph is getting a paycheck, so I'm sure he's happy about that. But That $1.5 million, it's great. It's great. Yeah, that yeah, that's the rumor. It's either one point five million dollars or seventy five thousand dollars, depending on who you talk to and what's going on. But <laughs> the fact that this guy is able to get that much money, let's just say it is one point five million. One point five million for not being over for the last two years or so at all and just being a channel changer, amazing. So good good for him. Yeah, definitely not one point five million, but like I like to live that dream. I like to live that dream. Oh, yeah. The Dolph Ziggler dream. So number 10 here, WrestleMania 17, another match from Houston, Reliant Astrodome. Mm-hmm. It is going to be Stone Cold. The gimmick battle royal. No, I'm just kidding. Go ahead. <laughs> Stone Cold Steve Austin versus The Rock. Mm-hmm. Now, why did you pick this match? This is one of the matches that there's a connection with music. Um, that's just how it is. I can play any song, and uh, if you grew up with a song, it may make you think of your mother or your father, of uh, your fiance, uh, your fifth birthday. Uh, maybe something special. Uh, maybe something bad. It's the power of music. And right now, if I played for any wrestling fan, if I played my way, they would immediately think of not just, oh, hey, this was used for WrestleMania. Or, oh, hey, this was Rock and Austin. I remember that. They would think of the video package. The video package. Yeah, that's the, my the way video, is the one. Yeah, it, it's like when when you start – and it's so, it's so crazy because – there's been so many video packages done over the years. Uh, 
And this is the one. This is the one, what, 15, 20 years later, whatever it may be, that this still stands out. This is the one that I remember. This is the one that's just at the top. And it's not because I was a huge Limp Biscuit fan or anything like that. Don't or... lie. <laughs> oh, I'm... <laughs> there's some things I can lie about on this podcast. And me not being a fan of Limp Biscuit uh, is not one of them. Don't worry, Sam. It's a safe space here. But, um, yeah, I mean, Limp... I thought he was okay. I thought, or Limp Biscuit, I thought they were okay. I thought the uh, Method Man. Uh, Limp Biscuit duet was pretty cool, but at the time I thought My Way was uh, definitely heightened by that video. Again, we talk about peanut butter and jelly. That's what it was uh, with the song and the images. And again, just that trilogy. I mean, this felt like a trilogy. Rock and Austin fought before multiple times, but you take a look at WrestleMania 15. You take a look at WrestleMania 17. Uh, the times they they. Uh, fought in between and it was always entertaining but i would say that this was probably their best match it just felt big it felt like there was so many stakes it felt like it was personal yeah there was comedy in it uh then you had the unknown element of vince mcmahon that actually played out really well uh jr just on commentary the whole thing just everything involved was just a really good package it was just a nice bow on top of a really good pay-per-view. Uh, to this day, WrestleMania 17, again, if we're making a top 10 list of WrestleManias of all time, WrestleMania 17 is in a lot of people's lists. And it, it's there for a reason, and this is one of the reasons, and a really fantastic show. Yeah, this is... I don't remember the match, actually. Is that bad? That's probably bad. <laughs> well, when's the last time you saw it? Um, Roughly. It, it wasn't any time uh, since probably 2013. Um, okay. So you, so you haven't seen it in the last five years or so. So that's not necessarily bad uh, um, because obviously you have a lot of stuff going on in your life. And not only that, but wrestling has just continued to expand where everybody and their mom – has a streaming service, an over-the-top streaming service now. Uh, so there's just so much content to digest. Uh, I know people who have backlogs of matches they just need to watch, whether it's going through the 80s Lucha compilation or Memphis or the Houston collection, whatever it may be. Uh, so to not necessarily be up-to-date on a match that occurred in 2001 is not a bad thing. <laughs> Well, thank you for uh, giving me reassurance. Reassurance there. Um, do you have any other things you would like to point out about Rock versus Austin? Um, is there anything else that attaches it to specifically you that you want to kind of have this match to go with you uh, to this deserted island? I think this was uh, Austin ended his career a few years later. And I think that, again, this was one of the last really good matches that he had. I mean, he had some moments after, but I think that this was one of the last hurrahs for him. And I think that in some, he might have known it as well uh, in some respects. Uh, but, yeah, I think that this is, if we're looking at tail end of Austin's career, uh, this is one of the highlights. Uh, for The Rock as well, you see him 
in a very interesting point where he's in this nexus of you could tell that this guy is bigger than Austin. He's bigger than the company. But you don't necessarily want to say or think that he's going to be this big movie star that he is now. But you could definitely see him being a spokesperson, doing some movies, doing some TV shows here and there as he was doing at the time. And he's just one of these people that you can look at and say, okay, this guy's going to have a career outside of pro wrestling, regardless of what it is. And so I think Rock was just at that nexus of, you know, pro wrestling and being a really big star. And so that that was really interesting. I think so when you have a guy who's at the tail end of his career and another guy who's really just beginning a new career that's a pretty interesting intersection and wrestlemania 17 captures that i i want the rock being now the biggest movie star on the planet is the most shocking thing of my lifetime um like he was obviously a magnetic character he's obviously a magnetic personality um larger than life the the all the adjectives that you would use to describe um these huge professional wrestlers and movie stars. Um, but to see him literally draw more money than anyone at the box office in the year of our Lord 2018 uh, is still baffles me. But good on him. Good on him. Oh, yeah, definitely. But, yeah, I, I don't think anybody would have been able to predict – the amount of success. Again, the rundown, Scorpion King, uh, he had something else at the time, Chase and Amy. No, it wasn't Chase and Amy. I can't remember what it's called. But um, yeah, he had about three movies, three or four movies at the time, and uh, they, they were all pretty good. They were pretty okay. But like I said, for you know, the billion dollars a year, or grossing actor, whatever it may be, whatever the statistics are, no one, no one saw that coming. Unbelievable. Incredible. Uh, still can't get give Robin the rub, but what are you going to do? <laughs> well, there we go. That was number 10. We're in the home stretch. We're in the final two. We're going to move on to number 11. You put down Sting beats down the NWO Nitro 1997. Set this one up for me. Sting, growing up, uh, Sting just had the best beatdowns. Just the best beatdowns. And his shots. I mean, we talk, talk about Shane McMahon and his terrible punches and RVD's terrible punches and Sid Vicious, Psycho Sid. Take a look at some of his punches from 2000 WCW. Absolutely mind-boggling. And Sting was just the king of legit beatdowns. Chops, punches to the face, kicks to the gut, elbows, the whole nine yards. It looked like he was in an actual fight and a bar fight. And no one really got hurt. But the visual of 20 people standing around in the ring and this guy comes down, either from the Raptors or walking down to the ring, or he's using all these games to trick the NWO with like multiple stings or coming from under the ring. 
and just beating them down at that point, throwing Macho Man over the top rope, kicking sticks, uh, punching Conan, the whole nine yards. Uh, so I would do that because, again, it takes me back to a time where wrestling was changing. So, again, we're talking about nostalgia. When wrestling was changing, Sting, one of my favorite wrestlers, he's changing. He's kicking everyone's butt. The crowd is losing their mind. People are throwing things in the ring. The commentators are losing their mind. And this is all building to the biggest match in WCW history of all time. And so this is to be able to relive and see, hey, this is the guy who's taking charge, who's leading the company to overcome evil, and he's doing it by himself. And again, simply amazing. Uh, I would definitely want to revisit uh, these beatdown moments. So if I could put together cheating a little bit, but if I could put together an ultimate Sting compilation, NWO beatdown of all the times he did it uh, in 1997, uh, or even in 96, if there was a little there, then I would definitely want to see that. We might be able to give you a supercut version uh, okay, um, of the beatdowns. Okay. Uh, Just make sure to set it to the music of Dynasty. Good. Perfect. Can do. Not the TV show, the album by Kiss. I want the entire <laughs> Dynasty album. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I was just going to keep on playing the video on loop. It'll be <laughs> the best. Um, well, all right. That is the number 11. We're moving on to the final segment, the final uh, promo. Uh, sitting at number 12. And I'm cutting you off right now. You're cutting You're me cut off. off. Yeah. You don't cut me off. Woo! Hey, don't you start that with me. Jay Lethal, Ric Flair, the TNA promo exchange. It is something. Why is this going to be the last thing on your Desert Island compilation? Because it would make me remember that TNA actually existed. And it will remind me of the potential the company had and all the great moments within TNA. We can rag about the company and the LOL TNA thing and the whole nine yards, and we really should because the company has shot itself in the foot so many times. But it's moments like this where we remember why the lights were kept on. And just to see uh, two guys out there just having fun and really trying not to laugh. Like Ric Flair throughout that entire segment is trying to play it as straight as possible. But you can tell he's having fun. Jay Lethal obviously having the time of his life because I'm sure Jay Lethal never thought that he would be able uh, in his career to interact with Ric Flair uh, on such a uh, large, if we will, scale. Uh, obviously TV cameras and being put on the internet and People to this day still love it and still watch it and still talk about it. Uh, to see AJ Styles wearing his dad's suit, uh, Kazarian looking like Antonio Banderas in uh, Desperado or whatever it may be, uh, Nigel McGuinness uh, obviously there under a different name, and Beer Money. I mean, just a really talented bunch of guys, one of the best promos of the business, 
uh, Jay Letho, extremely talented guy, and all of those guys grew into different roles and uh, meant different things as time went on. Uh, so to me, I think that is a good uh, capsule, if we will, of TNA, of a, of a good moment of TNA, what TNA could have been, what they should have been. Uh, again, that would just make me think of the company as a whole and its history of just the fuck-ups, but also just the high points and the how TNA, TNA did two things right as far as WWE is concerned. Uh and they never really promoted this, which is so interesting because you talk about the women's revolution. That was TNA. If we really want to talk about the women's revolution post big three era, as far as mainstream pro wrestling is concerned in North America, that's TNA. Hamada, Alyssa Flash, Taylor Wilde, Awesome Kong, Gail Kim, Roxy. That's TNA. Daphne, that's TNA. Uh, what was it? Velvet Sky and Madison Rain, I believe, was like the first female match in Abu Dhabi or in Dubai. Wherever Sasha and Alexa had their match, TNA did that years ago. And they gave it a little bit of press, but they never really, again, this whole women's revolution thing, TNA just missed the boat on that completely. And that doesn't mean that they should have gone overboard with the insincere marketing and Jeremy Borash giving roses to Hamada after a match and the locker room just giving applause and Dixie Carter coming out and crying. But at the same time, they definitely missed something good there, something that was genuine as well. You know, this was genuine. This was before... Uh, Ronda Rousey, before the women's soccer team, before this, before that, WWE waited for these other things to happen outside of pro wrestling before they said, okay, let's get on the boat, guys. Let's get on the bus. TNA was doing it before it was cool. They didn't capitalize on it. Another thing that TNA did well was comedy. WWE's comedy, I don't think we need to say much about it. It's hit or miss. TNA comedy was most most often, more than not, a hit. And again, this just shows a good aspect of the company, what it was, what it could have been, uh, where it could have continued to go. And that that's why I would put it on the list. I would definitely put it on for laughs, but for nostalgia and just to think about the philosophy overall of TNA. TNA is weird in that they did do comedy really well. Um, but the problem is that I don't think a major professional wrestling company in the United States can function on comedy alone. Um, so it was only it – was, it's a little sad that they did it so well that their serious stuff just didn't – never really compared to it. Um, also fun to watch the Jay Lethal career trajectory of a faux Ric Flair, like meant to be fake uh, Randy Savage sort of uh, approach, the black machismo. Um, and then becoming a Ric Flair-esque figure in Ring of Honor uh, years later. So it, it is kind of it's kind of funny to see how that all played out for him. Um, but yeah, this is a real hoot to watch. Um, should be on the YouTube. Oh, it is. It is. 
Well, great. I think that is a, a, a perfect note to end on. Uh, we had we had quite the the roller coaster of emotions here. Um, <laughs> to start with something a match where pure spectacle you didn't think it was very good over melodramatic, uh, then ending it on just a nice light note, something that just reminds you of, of a wrestling promotion, uh, their history and your I would assume maybe your favorite aspect of them. Um, the the humor that that could bring, um, yeah. whether it was intended or not, sometimes. <laughs> uh, so that's uh, that's a nice trip. That's a nice trip. So, uh, are you ready to go to the deserted island? I thought I was already there. <laughs> oh no! I thought I was there, and this is just the voice in my head. <laughs> no, not the yet. Hallucinations have kicked in, Sam. Not quite. Not quite. We got to kick you out of here uh, and okay. fly out there. Um, but I oh, think... I, oh, I see how it is. I see. <laughs> so this is like a Tales from the Crypt type of travel agent. Absolutely. Hey, you want to go here? Yeah, that would be nice. Okay, here you go. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I'll get on my Elon Musk SpaceX designed rocket ship and blast to the moon. Or rather not to the moon, just to a desert island. Maybe by the Cook Islands. I'm Tom O'Neill in that case. <laughs> um. Well, all right. That, is that reference obscure enough for this podcast? I think the maybe, Tom Neal reference. It's more. It's too obscure for me. Okay, that's good. Helpful at all. Okay. <laughs> good. All right. How you? How you feel about the list? Did you feel satisfied? Do you feel like this is this is a good representation of your taste and your thought process and uh, what you hope to accomplish over the next uh, the the next decades ahead of you? Oh wow. What do I hope to accomplish with my life on the island with this list? Yep. Uh, yep. Hopefully. Right. A novel I can, on Omega versus Akata or Osprey I, versus Ricochet? There are – there would definitely be some essays uh, coming from a lot of what I saw or rather what I read. Uh, I'd probably write something on how Kenny Omega became my best friend, how we started <laughs> off as enemies, but we became friends. You looked into his eyes. And... I looked into his eyes, and I looked into a no-sale dragon suplex, and yeah, we became best buds. Um, man, what would I do? How would this list? And again, that's an interesting question <laughs> because people talk about, oh, I, I would watch this and I would bring this. But what do you hope to gain from it? How do you think it will help you grow as a person or maybe it will destroy you? Uh, in some aspects, uh, maybe or maybe, or maybe it doesn't get through. Maybe just yeah, get maybe through maybe the day to day. Through. Maybe it's just uh, instead of alcohol or you know fermented coconut juice, it's just all right. I guess I'll do that Undertaker Shawn Michaels match again to get myself to sleep tonight. But um, it, it's really interesting. It's something to think about. Uh, I do not have the answer for ten years from now. Uh, with the Chamber of Horrors as my confidant. Uh, but hopefully it is well. Uh, hopefully I get off. Hopefully the flicker of light is bright enough for a passing ship to say, hey, wait a minute. I recognize that match. And I want to pull in to harbor to see it. Uh, well, is there anything that you would like to uh, plug 
Um, granted, you'll never be able to update your Twitter again. Um, there's no <laughs> new podcast episodes coming out, but still, uh, in case anyone wants to dwell on on the past of Tom Thista, uh, how would they go about doing that? If you wanted to dig into the archives, the military industrial suplex. So at MIS podcast, that's at MIS podcast. That's my Twitter handle. If you want to send me an email, military industrial suplex at gmail.com. I have kept promising and promising a website and I have yet to actually build it. So don't go to military industrial suplex.com unless you want to be disappointed. I probably shouldn't have said that. This is the Streisand effect in play. Or perhaps I'm just being a dumbass. The Military Industrial Suplex has some great shows coming up. Uh, you can find me on iTunes and Google Play. Also on the Pro Wrestling Only feed, Pro Wrestling Only place to be, SoundCloud feed. A uh, new one coming up on Trumpamania. Trumpmania. By Larvi. Margola. Uh, should be really interesting a uh, conversation uh, where we talked about Trump and pro wrestling. We got a little political, but not too political. There were some things I wanted to ask and dive into, but uh, I may save that for a Trump episode. So we may actually have a real discussion with Trump and uh, bring Lobby back. So we may do a part two and really start breaking down not just really the history, but what it all means. Again, we were introduced to the populist message of Donald Trump through WWE and through his various appearances over the years. Uh, I feel WWE gave him the biggest platform uh, of the that type of, of presenting that type of politics to the masses. And so it's really interesting to see where we are today, where Donald Trump is the president of the United States of America. The friendly fascists, indeed. The military industrial suplex. All right. Uh, Tom, thank you for being on, and uh, good luck on the island. Well, thank you. If I have a ham radio, if I fix myself a little ham radio there, where can I listen to you? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Concrete1992, and you can listen to me, uh, well, right here. Uh, go to wdkwrestling.lipson.com. Uh, go search uh, We Don't Know Wrestling on iTunes, um, subscribe, rate the show five stars because you care about me. Um, and that'd be great. That'd be great. That helps out the podcast. And uh, just thank you all for listening.